0: So if you guys remember a couple months ago, I went through Judges 16, which is the story right after this with Samson and Delilah. So a little bit of background on this is Samson's a Nazarite. He was a Nazarite from his birth, so he was set apart from his mother. They had trouble giving birth and eventually they gave birth to, uh, to Samson. Judges 14 is his first instance of his miracle with the lions, with uh, with him displaying his power not just his power, but the power after the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. So this one's interesting. It's, it's significant because the Spirit of the Lord doesn't rush upon him before. And so we see an interplay with this. So some of the background, especially Samson's Nazarite vow, his set apart to be holy. That is really, really crucial for this story. So that's a little bit of background on Samson. So he's set apart he marries a Philistine woman, which is also significant because she's from outside of Israel. And so what's huge for Samson is he's supposed to marry within the tribe, and he marries outside of the tribe. So he's already including some form of uncleanness into this tribe. And so throughout this, as you guys see from the title, Samson is supposed to be a judge for Israel. He's supposed to take the law from Israel and judge Israel based off the law but especially within Judges 15 and surrounding, he actually judges for himself, not for Israel. So you guys see the four points on our outline. The first point is Samson the father, those first couple verses. Then the next point is Samson the foxes. We'll see why that's significant. Then after that, Samson the jaw. So there's four distinct movements. And the last one after Samson and the jaw is Samson and the judges. So we'll see how Samson actually points us to a better judge, a perfect judge, being Jesus Christ. So the first couple of verses, Samson and the Father. And so it could be striking, which is why I chose that first verse from, Sam- or from Judges 1420 to go through first, because that's also crucial for this. Samson's wife was given. It's not. It's not really a passive. It's actually Samson gave his life to his companion, which sets this up beforehand for why he goes to the father. Because when he goes to the father, you can expect you just gave your wife over, and now you're going back to the father asking for hand again. And so we see. Samson's supposed to be a judge. He's supposed to be making righteous judgments. And so he does make a judgment. And his judgment's not for the sake of Israel. His judgment's is for his sake. He's like, I made a mistake. I gave away my wife. Goes back to the father and says, what do I have to do to get her back? And so he's making a judgment. This is a marker of what's to come. So again, he's the judge of Israel. We have to think throughout this entire story, is he judging correctly? This is what he was set apart to do. And then this wheat harvest in Judges 15.1. After some days at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife and a young goats. So first part, we can wonder, why is the author showing us, why is the author telling us about the wheat, about the wheat harvest? What does this matter for this narrative? It seems kind of arbitrary, like us telling, oh, it was fall and we were doing this. For the author of the judges he's telling us this is the time of this time of harvest, this time with they gather all the grain, they get all their food, they get everything they need to sustain themselves. The Philistines do. So he's telling us this is preparing us to what's to come. This is when the Philistines are harvesting and gathering their food. And Samson has a TIFF with the Philistines. And so this young goat, right after this, we're like, what on earth is he doing with this young goat? Why is he bringing this young goat? And most of us husbands probably have been through something similar to this. In ancient Near Eastern, this goat is like a box of chocolates. He's walking over to the husband and saying, I messed up. Here's the young goat. You can kill him. You can eat her. I hope you let me have my wife back. Because this time you didn't just go to the wife and say I'm sorry, you went to the family, and said I'm sorry, and so it's like him coming up with a like flowers and a box of chocolates, and saying like please accept my sorry, I, I'm like I've made a mistake, and the father's like you just gave her away, I thought you hated her, I thought in Deuteronomy it talks about you can give away your wife in this aspect with. Samson, what he's doing is he's giving her away for an improper reason. So like I said, this young goat is much like, like Godiva chocolates, ancient Godiva chocolates. So the father has every reason to believe that Samson hated his wife. The first, before he gives away his wife, he effectively divorced her and gave her away. And then right after this, the father gives him, quote, the, the pick of the litter. He says, okay, you gave away this wife. I'm going to give you an even more beautiful and even younger wife. But Samson says, no, I want what I want. I want who I've chosen. He believes he knows what is right in his own eyes. And this starts kind of a paradigm for Samson. We'll see a lot of parallels with Samson and Adam. Adam from the creation story, we'll see a lot of parallels where Samson's judging according to what he wants, not according to what Israel needs, what Yahweh asked him to do. It's verse three when he's talking about, and Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. We haven't been introduced to the Philistines in chapter 15 yet. What Samson's doing is saying, the father's wronged me. They're part of this tribe. Therefore, what the father's done, I'm going to do to all the Philistines. I'm going to do to all of the Philistines. Samson takes this wrong personally towards him and pushes it towards the Philistines. He's avenging himself for the wrong that he did, not for the wrong that the Philistines did, for the wrong that he did. So Samson did what was right in his own eyes. He's repeating that Adam cycle. Adam looked at the tree, knew what Yahweh said. He said, don't take of this tree for in that day you shall surely die. Samson says, I'm going to do this even though I know that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. He's judging for himself. He's avenging himself versus judging for Israel because he can't buy back his wife with the box of chocolates. With this female goat. He's supposed to be judging according to the law of God. But he's about to judge the Philistines because his box of chocolates didn't work. So that second point, Samson the foxes, those next ten verses. So admittedly the scenes seems a little odd. We can look at this and say, why is he choosing these foxes? Why is he linking their tails together? Why is he pushing them to run down? sweets. So it's a little odd, but Samson probably chose these foxes. They're all you can also translate as jackals, which is more of a like a communal fox community versus just a single fox because of their speed and they zigzag when they run. They don't run straight. So when they zigzag they, actually, they cover more real estate when they run down. So they want to move fast enough through the field before the Philistines noticed. So we see another preview of the string. He just took 300 foxes, tied their tails together, and told them to go that way. And as one commentator puts it, Samson's mastery of the animals is violent and exploitative rather than responsible, and in service of war, avenging war, versus peace for Israel. And so these foxes, they burn up the grain in the olive orchards. This is where verse 1 comes into play. This is during the wheat harvest. This is when things are at the highest. This is when the Philistines are going out for food. And so for Samson to destroy their fields of wheats and olive, he's declaring war. He's saying, this father has done something to me and only me. I'm going to take out everything you guys own. So he ups the game. And so that's where the harvest feast comes in. This is prime time agricultural season for the Philistines. He's wiping out their food supply. He's declaring war. And again, we have to keep in perspective. It's because he can't get his wife back. It's not because the Philistines did anything wrong against him. It's because he can't get his wife back. It's because he's given her away. And the Philistines then, after this respond with fire. He responds with fire. He lights up the torches of the fox's tails. They respond with fire. Samson destroyed all that they own, all of their food, all of their water, all of their grain. The Philistines then take that same principle. They said, we're gonna murder your family. We're gonna burn their house down. So this reverses judgments. Samson judges the Philistines, they judge him right back. Samson, again, we have to keep in mind, he's supposed to be judging for Israel. Now, he is the subjects of judgments. He should be rendering judgment, righteous judgments. And now judgment from the Philistines, his enemies, are judging him. Everything's being reversed. Samson should be one-way judging, and now all of it's coming against him. And in verse 7, Samson promises a legal judgment, kind of like a tit-for-tat. You did this to me, therefore I'm going right back next to you. He's taking their judging philosophy, how they do it, and he's saying, I'm going to do the same thing you guys just did to me. Again, versus judging according to the law. So legal and theological terms, it's, it's called this lex talionis. It's, just, it's literally, you did this, I'm going to do the same thing. You burned, I'm going to burn. You killed, I'm going to kill. So it's not, it is not—it lawful under the law, written in the Pentateuch. But again, Samson is avenging himself. He's not avenging for Israel. And this hand and hip blow, right in verse 8, and he struck them hip- and thigh with a great blow. Think of like ancient Near Eastern MMA. They were like going after, Samson's going after this guy. He's taking MMA principles like, I'm, I'm gonna wrestle you down to the ground. Right after this, a great blow, which is obliterating. He's the top MMA wrestler. So I'm gonna go in the ring with all of you guys, and I'm gonna take you guys all out. This is ancient Near Eastern MMA, mixed martial arts. He's absolutely brutalizing them. And Samson knows this area well, which is why he goes to the rock of Etam. Etam's where fugitives go. It's not where rulers go. It's not where judges go. It's where somebody who knows an area really well who wants to hide. So it's not just this place that he finds. He finds this cleft in the rock and says, oh man, the Philistines are coming after me. I have to hide. Again, not to avenge Israel, but to avenge himself he's scared he's judged them unrighteously now they're judging him and he's fleeing instead of standing for israel standing for his people saying this is not going to happen to my people to me he's fleeing and so these these philistines encamp at lehi so it seems okay great this place is called lehi random place name but in the hebrew Lehi is the same word for jawbone. So this place name for Lehi is actually the author telling us, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop a little hint in verse 9 about what's to happen. The jawbone becomes crucial. Lehi and jawbone is the same word in Hebrew. So the author is showing us his cards. He's foreshadowing what's to come before we even get to the main events. And these men of Judah who are now introduced into the narrative. They're probably just local militiamen. They're like your, your local police versus the federal representatives who come to a town. They do the bidding. They're told by the Philistines, hey, go take care of this guy. So they go take care of this guy. Samson's in Philistine territory, not for his people's sake, but because he's scared. He's fleeing. Samson's at the lowest of the lows. He's hiding, and not even the Philistines, but the ones the Philistines hire. So even below the Philistines are the ones who have incited him. So get the irony of this. There's just, there's just, this story is thick with irony. Thick of being opposite of what it should be. Samson, the powerful judge of Israel, who's already displayed his power, the Philistines know it; they've seen it. Is now being confronted by those below the Philistines. This powerful judge, who sh- the Philistines should want to bring the most powerful militiamen, bring the underlings, bring the bring the lowest militiamen possible to take down Samson. He's fallen; he's down. In verse twelve, again, they know his strength, which is why they bind him they bind him because of his great strength so words gotten around Samson has to be restrained maybe this will keep him at bay maybe what happened before won't happen again in verse 13 they're transporting him to their to their judge again we have to keep in mind over and over again pounding into our brains Samson's the judge he's the one given the divine empowerment to be a judge and these Judites are giving him to their judge Sanson's about to be judged by the philistines it's flipped so instead of Sanson bringing them to his judge those in judah are bringing him to their judge so the judge is now being transported to the pagan judgments rendered by the philistines so we have to ask Will Samson redeem himself? Will, will he be the righteous judge over his people? Will he succumb? Is this, is this simply a, like a personal vendetta done wrong? Or is there something deeper here? So after the first part, Samson the father, and then Samson and the foxes, we go to Samson and the jock. So in verse 14 the place name lehi or lehi is brought up again this is also a crucial point the spirit of the lord rushes upon him then doesn't rush upon him with the foxes and i think there's a very specific thing that the author is trying to point out what happened before we're not sure of this divine empowerment it doesn't say it we're here we know this is divine empowerment because the spirit of the lord does rush upon him this is of Yahweh, versus before, we're not told whether or not it's Yahweh. So you can assume, likely, it's not. So it's not explicit, he's now being used in his judging capacity. What is being done now, finally, is for the sake of his people. We read the same thing again in Judges 16, and also happens in Judges 14. Verse 15 is where we see the same word used in the place name of Lehi, or Lehi, used for the jawbone in verse 15. Where it says in verse 15, And he came and he found a fresh jawbone, again, same word as the place for Lehi, of a donkey, and put it in his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men. So what's big here, this is a fresh jawbone. What this means is this is taken off a dead animal. What can a Nazarite not do? Touch a carcass. So we have to keep this stuff in tension. Why is he touching a carcass? Why is he touching a dead animal? What's wrong with this picture? Why is he doing what's explicitly against the Nazarite vow? Why is he doing this? this is, it's a fancy word, but I'll describe it. This is a prime example of what's called divine intrusion. So it's judgments in the future coming now. They're so previewing what judgment in the future looks like right at this instance. Because this happens in the spirit of the Lord, the divine reality coming in the future that's for sure is breaking in a little here. It's giving us a glimpse of the future judgment to come at this specific time in redemptive history. We can almost think of Jesus' healings on the Sabbath, very similarly to Samson the jawbone. Jesus does what they thought was against the Sabbath. He heals. He does work. But it's, he is that true Sabbath who comes in the human Sabbath and shows them this is what heaven looks like. Me healing, me giving, healing, me showing you what this looks like. This is heaven. This is happening in seed form with Samson. He's showing them what's to come. I'm taking what's unholy. I'm breaking Nazarite vow to show you what's unholy, to show you what's coming in the future. A little bit of heaven is breaking in with Samson. So this jawbone is judgment breaking in at this very moment. Divine judgment. Using a piece of a donkey's jaw, donkey's carcass. And then right after this, in verse 16, has some beautiful poetry. The NIV, I think, captures this the best. It says, with a donkey's jawbone, the same word actually appears. I have made donkeys of them. With the donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. So in the ESV it says, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. All they do is they take a different vowel, they place it under the word, and it makes a slightly different word. I think it's a little bit more faithful to have, with a jawbone of a donkey, I have made them donkeys. It's meant to be very, very, very ironic. I have made them what this bone is. With this judgment, I am judging them. And they will be with this bone Represents. The play on words, it's it's, it's literally four straight words of the same exact thing in the Hebrew. Play on words is thick. This divine judgment has used this vessel, a donkey's jaw, of all things, to make them what this vessel is. Samson's utilizing the tool of justice, this jawbone. It's not himself, he has to pick something up, use this. This breaking in of heaven. This breaking in of judgment. Not him taking a tool to use this tool to do his bidding. To do what the Lord has asked. In verse 17, Sanson then places the name. The name's the place based upon what he has done. Notice again, he doesn't call this anything attached to Yahweh. He names this based off of a caller, the one who's done this. No sense of Yahweh being the deliverer, but what Samson's done. He's heaped up bones with his jawbone. Ramat lehi literally means a hill of bones. So he's not naming it off of what Yahweh's done through him. He's naming it off of what he's done. Again, he's judging based off of himself. And in verse 18, we continue to get this conflicted deliverer. He's self-serving but he still kind of acknowledges Yahweh. He's killed a couple people, he's killed a lot of people. So granted, he's thirsty. Verse 18, he's thirsty. This is this this call is not relation who is judging for his people. He's saying, "I'm thirsty. Give me sustenance. Give me what I want." There is some understanding, a little bit. He is calling out to the name of Yahweh, but usually the word here, it's usually used, this word is for call. Usually when people call for Yahweh, it's cry. They cry out to Yahweh. He's calling, it's, it's more of a, more of an intimate relationship versus cry is you're crying out to somebody. And he also says too, the distinction, so he talks about uncircumcised and Israel, and the circumcised People, he's, he's calling them uncircumcised. Again, he's married outside of Israel. And he's saying, I can't deal with these uncircumcised people. When he himself married from an uncircumcised people. In verse 19, much like when the Israels cried out and placed the lawsuits against Yahweh, where they literally talked to Moses and say, I'm going to bring a lawsuit. I'm going to bring... Yahweh into court with me and tell him what he's done wrong, taking us out of the house of bondage where we had food, we had water, we had all that we need. We're going to judge him. That's what Samson's doing. He's crying out. He's crying out, placing this against Yahweh. But Yahweh doesn't judge him. The Lord doesn't strike him down dead and saying you've judged for yourself. You've done what was right in your eyes. He gives him water. He's saying exactly what you've asked for, I will give. You haven't earned it, but I will give it to you. So, though he's an unrighteous deliverer, he's given what he needs. The Lord still answers. The Lord still provides for Samson, even though he has utterly failed at judging for his people's sake instead of because he felt personally hurt. By his ex-wife's father. Is there, a ju- is there a righteous judge to come. Who will judge correctly. On behalf of his people. And this brings us to point four. Samson and the judges. The last verse. The very points of a judge. To render the law correctly. Was to render the law correctly. Upon their people. And to provide rest. For their people. Especially after Joshua. When they're shown the promised land, this is the promised land. You're supposed to rest here. It's to stay in this rest. So what does the text say of Samson in Judges 15-20? And they judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Where's the rest? There's no rest. And also, it says in the days of the Philistines. It should end... With and he judged Israel, and they had rest. But as, And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines, so they're under the rule of the Philistines, and they have no rest. Israel both had no rest, and were being judged by the Philistines. This is opposite of what it should be. This is a double whammy. It's You have no rest, and you're not even under a righteous judge. They're an unrighteous judge. So we have to ask after reading Judges 15, and really all of Judges, who will provide this rest? So sorely needed for the Israelites. Who will provide the rest we so sorely need in this land of our exile? Israel's in exile. They're not, they're trying to find rest. And they don't have this rest specifically under judges so what i wanted to do to end is to read from hebrews chapter 4. hebrews chapter 4 is all about rest it actually talks about the episode right before this hebrews chapter 4 says therefore with the promise of entering his rest still stands while the promise of entering his rest still stands let us fear, lest any of you shall seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundational world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again the passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying, through David, so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, the book right before Judges, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by that same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. Concerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give accounts. So the days of Joshua were supposed to give rest, and they failed. The days of judges were also supposed to bring were also supposed to bring rest, and they failed. We see very explicitly: Samson fails everything, doesn't give him rest, and is being judged himself. We are under the ruling of the true judge who not only won his rest, this rest for us, but is actually in heaven seated, resting at the right hand of God, who has given us the spirits that rushed upon Samson to rest now while we await our eternal rest in heaven. Let us praise the one who has provided this rest for us when everyone else throughout salvation history has failed to do this. Let us pray.